When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. And welcome to all you new people. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe. We have new episodes coming out every Monday. And if you've been around for a while, make sure to hit us up on Instagram and Facebook. Send us who you'd like us to listen to next. And uh, you might get your favorite artist featured on an upcoming episode. Uh, And if you are a lover, a connoisseur, a, a, a chef... A good taste in music. Oh go God. down, <laughs> go down to the description of the episode. Find the Patreon link. That's where all the super fans are. That'll give you access to early episodes as well as our after-hours segment, the Bad Music Podcast, where we talk about the six worst songs in that artist repertoire. But Lucas, who are we talking about today? We are doing one of those fan requests tonight. Yeah, about. A band called Dire Straits. Ooh. One of they're one of the biggest bands of all time, yet at the same time, I feel like they're kind of an underrated band. Which, I, I agree. I think everyone's heard of Dire Straits, but like not really. And they they, yeah. they actually are one of the uh biggest selling groups of all time. Wow. Because that that brother in arms episode or not episode album was one of the biggest records of the eighties. Really? Oh yeah, big time. Okay, so they are an eighties band, I guess. Well, their they their first albums came out in the late seventies, so their late seventies, eighties, and then their last album came out in the early nineties. Okay, okay. They have a they have a very concise. Um, uh, discography, hmm. which made uh, uh, researching very easy. Yeah, streamlined. Yeah, and um, uh, we want to give a special thanks to our fan Michael Stojilevjic. I'm re- I really am not quite sure how to say your last name, but um, thank you so much for requesting us to do Dire Straits. Um, they're a band that I really didn't know too much about before. Oh man! Oh lord! Ram? No. Four. Hello. Four. Wait, we lost. The... We lost you. We lost you. We lost you. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> you said before 
You said you thanked him for submitting you the episode, and then we lost you. Oh no. Okay. Um, before we get into uh, everything, what we're gonna do is talk about our first thoughts, our first impressions, and kind of give a baseline for where we are as far as our appreciation and love for this band. So, Grant, what are your first thoughts about Dire Straits? I am completely in the middle. Completely 100% like indifferent. Because like I've heard obviously the big songs like Money for Nothing, Sultans of Swing that everybody else has heard. Um, I knew that they existed since I was pretty young because of those songs specifically. Um, but it's like, I never heard anything else. I always, I always thought they were like one of those bands that had like two, three good songs and then a huge discography that, you know, all the cult um, fans would listen to. And so I guess I'm, I'm curious to see like how much of that is accurate through this and then also just like i don't know anything about the band at all i don't even know what the lineup looks like i don't know like what their style is technically um how diverse they can be that kind of thing like i just there's just so much i just don't know i i basically i have a blank slate you know as far as like what i understand about the band so which is kind of rare for the podcast nowadays but um I am looking forward to the rest of the episode. All right. Ethan? Uh, yeah, I would say I'm pretty much where Grant is. I might have a little bit more uh, in terms of taste. I I like – anytime a Dire Straits song comes up, I like it, you know. But I've never I, – I guess I've never known about the band or liked it enough to, like, put it in a playlist or, like, make sure to come back to it. I think – Whenever I think of Dire Straits, I think of Walk of Life, you know. But that's also because I was a, like, I was a football player, and this song was like on like that playlist, like you know, like the Friday night football playlist, you know. <laughs> so Walk of Life is my go-to Dire Straits song. But uh, <laughs> I was uh, again, I'm giving my first thoughts. But like, whenever I started listening to the playlist that Lucas put together, I was like, whoa. <laughs> Mm -hmm. like not even close i mean i guess it's close in some ways because it's the same band but you know what i'm saying yeah walk of life mm -hmm. really <clears throat> abnormal song for them i feel that was, but, kind of, that was kind of more out of their normal wheelhouse but that that was my that's walk of life and i knew about sultans of swing you know um of course i i think sultans of swing is probably everyone else's go-to not walk walk of life but so but walk of life is like a more stereotypical 80s you know like the woo you know in mm -hmm. there so i was like oh dire straits is i i, I was kind of like they're probably walk of life and sultan swing i was like that sounds like they're two one hit like you know they're two really big things that they did and then like all the other 80s bands on the football playlists you know they you know that's what they have and then you don't really listen to them ever again. And so I'm, I am, I have a positive disposition of Dire Straits, but I would probably put myself like in the middle. Like I would never turn off a Dire Straits song. It's not bad music to me. Yeah. So you would, you'd probably put I'm yourself at a three. I'm a three. I'm a, I'm, I'm probably like a 3.1. Three. That's 
very specific. <laughs> oh my lord! Yeah, that's true. So I would I would say that I was probably a four, but because the even though I didn't know a lot of Dire Straits, the Dire Straits songs that I did know, I really really liked. I I understood them as being like in the the upper tier of great seventies and eighties songs. But I had just never taken the dive to really start um, going through the stuff that isn't just played normally on the radio. You just found more gems. Yeah. So it was... Um, I I knew that I would like them, and they were always a band that I meant to get into and I just never did because there were always other things that were grabbing my attention and that probably also would have continued to happen had not gotten requested for this episode which is why (laughs) the uh, fan requests I think are going to be so fun and so great for us is it'll allow me to get to those bands where like oh of course I needed to do them but maybe I don't ever think to yeah so so what um, makes what makes Dire Straits like so prolific? So I don't really know about them outside of just knowing about them in the culture of music. Yeah, um, Dire Straits pretty much is centered around a musical mastermind named Mark Knopfler, which mm-hmm. you've probably heard that name before. Maybe you haven't. Yeah. Um, he is the singer and lead guitarist. Mm. Oh, this is the same person. Okay. Yep. So he is he is the brainchild of the whole thing. Um but also by his side is um his brother David on rhythm guitar. Mm-hmm. And uh you've also got um, John Isley on bass, Pick Withers on drums, and Alan Clark on keyboards. So it's a it's a five piece. Yeah, and then a couple of different um, members have gone in and out. Uh, Mark Knopfler and John Isley are actually the only members to play through the duration of the group, which is really only from seventy seven to ninety five. Hmm. And they only have uh, six records total, and pretty much not any uh, uh, extra material. So not you know, there's not tons of EPs or um, bone like exclusive releases where it's just like, oh, you know, they did a lot of soundtrack work or they're featured on this record. Like it's pretty much like you've got those six albums. A couple of non-album tracks, and that's it. It's a very, um, it's a very sparse recording. But holy crap, did they make the use of it? Mm-hmm. Um, I and then Mark Knopfler has gone on to have a very um, prolific solo career. Mm-hmm. One of my biggest regrets when it comes to concerts is whenever I was in college and I was uh, dating my first serious girlfriend, she was a big Bob Dylan fan. 
And for her birthday, I got her uh, tickets to go see Bob Dylan. And at the time, I had no appreciation for Bob Dylan, and I hated every single minute that I was there. <laughs> and in in my defense, Bob Dylan did not sound great that night. Okay. But Mark Knopfler was his opening act, and I had no idea who he was. <laughs> and I like I at that point I probably knew two Dire Straits songs total and he didn't play either of them but I now know that he probably played a ton of them just not you know his big radio hits and so right, right. I, I wish that I could go back in time and see that opening because <laughs> you know i don't remember any of it i don't remember a single thing <laughs> but at least uh, you can still say that you saw mark Knopfler. yeah oh, gosh dang it i did not appreciate it like i'm just like oh i bet that i bet he played romeo and juliet i bet he played um some of these other great songs that you know i just because you know he didn't play sultans of swing he didn't play walk of life so you know, there wasn't, I didn't know that it was him. And I actually ran into a friend of mine in the intermediate period, like mm-hmm. the opening act and the main act. And uh, he was just like, Oh, did you come here to see Mark Knopfler? And I was like, No. Who's that? <laughs> and he's like, That's who, that's who opened. And I remember thinking, I was just like, Okay. And then it was, I would say it was probably six months later that I found out that he was the guy in Dire Straits. And I was like, Oh, oh no. <laughs> what have I done? I didn't know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's – so I have seen him. And I, I remember thinking when I was watching it that it was good, but I also, like, was just not interested because I think all overall I wasn't interested in that whole experience. I, I literally fell asleep during Bob Dylan's part. Thought, <laughs> <laughs> hey, keep a girl, um, Lucas. Well, it was it was for the best anyway. <laughs> our, our our relationship was was heading to the to the uh, the downward slope by that point anyway. Oh. Sad, but Mark Knopfler, he, I think, also now I'm really appreciating how good he is now that we have. I feel like Bruce Springsteen has just like completely changed the way that all of us are looking at music now because I see mm-hmm. a lot of similarity between him and Springsteen. Tell mm-hmm. them. They both really capture that working class uh, heartland soul, mm-hmm. but they're also in, in the same way, kind of two sides of the same coin because Dire Straits is a British group. Hmm. What? Yeah, he did not. That doesn't make he does worse. not sound very British when he sings. No. But yeah, so obviously he's not. You know, capturing American. Uh, he's more talking about the English working class. So, um, but at the but they're 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 kind of approaching the same way. Like it's these it's these very poetic, very grand stories. Yet at the same time, they're always about everyday people. Hmm. And it's it's very much just from this it's this journeyman storyteller perspective. 
Like when you really look at Mark Knopfler's lyrics, they're very poetic. And yet at the same time, it's just like they're very relatable. Yeah. So I can I can see that they both um, were kind of coming from the same angle. Right. No, yeah, I definitely saw a lot of similarities too. I would even go so far as to say that some of the songs on this list, I actually thought that they were like Springsteen's songs. Yeah, you you definitely would not be um, considered crazy for thinking that. Right, right. Um, but yeah, no, no, I think you're right. It's like this is this is one of many now that because I think we had our Springsteen episode back in December. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we talked about the killers again, and there was like, there were so many similarities there. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. Like, it was, it was immediate change. Uh-huh. So, it's, it's, it's continuing to kind of follow us now. I'm, yeah. I'm finding it to be pretty funny. Yeah. So, I'm curious how they got started. Like, give me the history. So, Mark Knopfler didn't start Dire Straits until he was almost 30. Oh, he um, he had a job as a school teacher and just kind of like moonlighted on evenings playing with different groups and writing songs, but kind of never really had any uh, expectations of hitting it big. (laughs) Well, until finally, like he kind of got the right group of people around him and realized that he had enough songs to to make something and was just like, you know what? I think it's time to finally, um, you know, make a proper go at this. And they got big immediately. Sultans of swing was on their first record. Oh, wow. Wow. And you know, that went to number four on the U S charts. So that was, you know, that was a huge deal. They were not a slow climb to the top. I mean, I, I wouldn't say they were necessarily at the top yet, but like they got a huge head start. Yeah. It didn't take three or four albums for them to finally start to develop a sound or an audience. Like they they were surprisingly fully formed right at the get-go. Hmm. And uh, but they wouldn't have another record that was as big as uh the first one until Brothers in Arms came out. And when that came out in 85, that was the biggest selling album of that year. And um, they got a number one single out of it. Talk about how difficult it is. Springsteen never had a number one. Yeah. There are many, many bands. Many great legendary bands. I mean, we talked about Zeppelin never had a number one, but that was kind of more because they never released singles. Yeah. But I mean, just you, I think people really don't understand how big Dire Straits was in the mid 80s. Like it was a, it was a huge, huge record. Like it won album of the year at the Grammys, um, Money for Nothing won video of the year. And like it was just, it was a m- m- massive record. They were the biggest band in the world that year. Wow, this is their second, you said, or is this? No, that was that was their f- uh, fifth record. Okay, so it's okay. 
So they kind of they did have that middle period where they definitely were more experimental and kind of worked mm-hmm. on their songwriting. Like they didn't they didn't have anything else that even came close to the top ten until Brothers in Arms came out. Hmm. So they were kind of on the direction of maybe Sultans of Swing was like the the one hit. Yeah. And they were just going to kind of be more of a cult band. But then, you know, then they made Brothers in Arms and that kind of just like really sealed the deal. Mm-hmm. But um, Mark Knopfler is a very anti-fame guy, very much in the same way that Springsteen was. He realized that he was never going to make anything that could ever top Brothers in Arms as far as the bigness of it. Not saying that he couldn't write an album as good as it, but he knew that he that that was a once in a lifetime record. Mm-hmm. As far as just like the 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 timing was perfect, the songs were perfect for that time. Um, you know he he was not kidding himself in thinking that he's was going to have another album that was not only big as big but bigger, and so. Mm-hmm. He took a long hiatus and then um, decided to um, make one more record and then call it quits and pursue his own solo material. Hmm. That's respectable. So, yeah. He he was a, definitely a realist. Really, you can – I've listened to a little bit of his solo material since then. You can tell that that's like – that's what he really believed in. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he it's it's it allowed him to focus more on like his acoustic guitar stuff and right and just the the stuff that's much more in a lyrical sense, very deep, and not have to worry about writing the you know the walk of life money for nothings. Right. And that is kind of freeing and. To an extent, I think we show that side of Dire Straits on this set. Yes. I wanted to kind of have both sides. The first half of the right. set we're going to be talking about is very much more the the radio-friendly side. And then the second half is definitely that more that, that artist. Where it's like, you know, he's writing, you know, he's writing songs. He's he's putting he's putting poetry to tape. Uh huh. Poetry in motion, as they would say. That's true. So, um, so what? Whenever you say that Brothers in Arms was right place, right time, can you go a little bit more into that? Like, what made that pop so much? Well, um, I mean, really, Money for Nothing was the big vehicle of that record. That was their one number one hit, and. You know, MTV was the all-consuming force in the music industry at that time. So to have a pretty much create MTV's theme song was, you know, going to obviously very much propel them to superstar status. Um, the The songs felt right for the time as far as the way they sounded. And... He he had some some great collaborators with him, which we'll talk about. You know, another reason why Money for Nothing was so big is he had a very um, 
an A-list mm-hmm. guest songwriter with him on it. We'll see if you guys yes. can uh, if you guys ID'd him. Oh yeah, oh I already know. Um, and honestly, just the songs were good. Hmm. I think I think the biggest thing was that Money for Nothing was like the perfect single for 1985, as mean? well as the it had the perfect video. Oh, cool. It was the perfect single, like it, it it encompassed the whole year. I I think so. I think that I, as in just like it was it was it couldn't have worked as well at in any other time. It was mm. it the whole song centered around again MTV, which was you know that was the biggest thing in the music world at that time. That was when MTV was hitting its peak popularity and peak effectiveness. You. There was about a there's about a I would say a four year period from like eighty five to eighty nine where like if you didn't have a great MTV video and MTV did not have your back, then it didn't matter how good you were, you weren't gonna make it big. Mm-hmm. It was just it was just the way that it had become. Right, right. And so um to have to pretty much kind of like curry the favor of MTV by making a song about MTV i think was you know something that really played in their favor and yeah. got it on heavy rotation <laughs> and then um i think honestly it was the success of that song it going to number 1 that just everyone went out to go get the record because it's really not a very commercial sounding record. Like most of the songs are like over the five minute mark on that album. It's a double record and it's only got like uh, 10 songs on it. Are they more experimental? Uh, several of them are. So they, they really didn't change their sound really from that experimental Era. No, it was still there. It's, you know, it was less experimental than, say, um, you know, Lightning uh, Over Gold mm. or Love Over Gold. Love Over Gold. Yeah. yeah. That was definitely their most experimental record. Um, and I would say the several records before then, uh, Making Movies was another one that wasn't particularly super commercial sounding. But, you know, because, I mean, yes, it also helped that you have a song like, say, Walk of Life that um, helps to get you on radio and is a very, you know, it's a very uh, familiar, unintimidating sound. Like that Mm -hmm. keyboard line just, you know, it's it's no wonder that that was a hit record. Mm-hmm. So, um, but just again, he he knew that that was he wasn't going to get that again. Now, was that was that an intentional like, I guess, lassoing of the of the music that they were creating? No, or was that just that's just where they were that's headed? Just, was towards he that. said that he had no intentions of making the biggest album with when he was making it, and he didn't know that it was going to happen that way. He was making another record, and okay. it just and just happened to really explode. 
So it's kind of from the same philosophy. It's not like how Metallica changed everything with, with like the Black Album. It wasn't like, you know, completely reinvent the style. It, that's that's essentially what has been happening. It's just happened to work out. This yeah, because there's there are times when artists intentionally try to make the big record. You know, what Def right. Leppard did when they went to make Hysteria. They're right. the whole... Um, motive behind making that album is we want to make a greatest hits record where every song on this album is a hit and seeded. Mm-hmm. That's one of that's it's maybe the most hit filled album in rock history. There, there were hmm. there were I think six top ten singles on that album, and it sold over twenty million copies. And then there's okay. other times where they're not trying to make the biggest album in the world, and it just happens to be. Right. Now, would you say that – now, I know you would say that we wouldn't really be talking about Dire Straits if it weren't for Brothers in Arms. But do you think that we would be talking about them if it weren't for the Love Over Gold type of albums? Like, is that kind of where they're I- – secret weapon yes i think so i and i think that that and it's really that's the kind of stuff that his solo material has really veered towards Mm -hmm. um i think that it's that stuff that really makes them such a deep band um we're gonna when we talk about uh our worst songs when we get to after hours i think that adele has a rival for best bottom six wow like it also helps that he's got or they've got I gotta remember to just not just talk it's not just Mark Knopfler, it's the whole band Dire Straits. Uh, right. It helps that they have a lean discography. They don't have a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of filler material. And also they don't even have bad records. Every mm-hmm. record that they've made has mostly good songs on it. Mostly good or mostly great? Mostly good. Okay. Now, there are albums. Now, they do have some albums that have mostly great. Uh, Brothers in Arms, for example. Yes. Also, that first record is just really good. (laughs) The self-titled. Also, Love Over Gold, for the most part, is a great record. Yeah, that's that's the one that's really interesting. And there's not even any bad songs on it. The worst song on it is pretty good. Oof, that's that's good to hear. Uh-huh. That that's especially good to hear because I know that um, I came into Adele almost like hating Adele, uh-huh. and then we went through like the six worst songs, and they're actually really good. And then the whole thing about like, oh, Adele only has three albums. I'll just listen to them all and see what I think for myself, <laughs> right? I can foresee this happening with Dire Straits. Yeah. If- the, the problem is I'm still listening through all of Meshuggah's stuff, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm running out of time. But Hey, if I can do it, you can. That's true. That's true. Um, something interesting that about Mark Knopfler's playing style is that mm-hmm. he does not use a pick on any. Oh, I remember this being a thing, yeah. He finger picks everything because he learned how to play a banjo first. You can kind of tell 
with well okay i would have to say that money for nothing is the easiest one to tell yeah that intro but for something like uh lady rider it almost is like you can that sounds really picked Mm -hmm. especially that intro well it's it's finger he has not used a pick ever that is, that is I mean, awesome. But it's I don't not, want to make a statement like that because someone's going to say, well, in 2001 in a solo show for one song, he used a pick. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. sure. Yeah. But it was it was always him doing the solos. He was never yeah. – never He brother. was the lead guitarist. So all solos, all lead lines were being played by him. Always. Wow, mm-hmm. okay. That's interesting. So what is what was that dynamic like? Like did, did David start with the band? Did David? Oh, David. Not. Yeah, did. Um, yes, he did. But he actually left after um, uh, the second record. There was there was a lot of conflict between those two brothers. What happened? Really? Okay. See, this is what we got to start talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, there's always that. Um that tension whenever you have um when you ever ha- you have brothers in a band i mean you know just look at a look at oasis they mm-hmm. started off you know and of brothers and you know they literally hate each other's guts <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's it's very unfortunate mm-hmm. and um, you know, pretty pretty much the same thing happened here. Um, Mark Knopfler does not like to go into detail about mm-hmm. the drama. He very much, whenever he does interviews and whenever, you know, you go into his past, he very much kind of like covers it up. Kind of mm-hmm. likes to just go. Oh, I don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about the music. It's almost very Aretha Franklin in the way that he's kind of like he kind of glosses over some of the uglier parts. Well, of his band. I, but it, se- it seems a little bit less like image conscious driven as Aretha because you said he yeah. wasn't really a famous guy. He sounds <laughs> like he's just more of a private guy, and he just is like, it's, "What happens between me and my brother is between me and my brother." Uh-huh. So I respect that. Yeah, that's fair. It sounds like people just trying to stir up drama, and he's like, "That that's in the past. That's not what I'm here for." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would agree with Ethan's assumptions, unless he was super weirdly image conscious. But no, he I th- sound I think, like that kind of guy. I think most of the problem was with David. He, I, from what I was able to tell, it just it felt like something that the 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 instant success and the pressure of it kind of broke him. Yeah. And, um, I just, I think that it ended up really creating a scar between the two brothers. Mm. But I mean, there's, it's not this big epic, uh, story like stay with sticks where you've, Mm -hmm. where you've got this years long, feud of and control for power but um you know it definitely um i think it was also because when you ask dire straits fans what's their weakest record everyone 
is pretty much unanimous that it's the second record. Huh. Communique. Hmm. Because of the fact that because the first record was such an instant success that they were rushed into the studio going, come on, we need another record right now. Mm. And, yeah, that's not, uh, not the way to go. <laughs> Mark definitely looks back on the record with a lot of disdain. He's just like, the songs were not what I wanted them to be. You know, we we didn't have any time to really write a bunch of great songs. Um, and just he he definitely talks about about that point in the band being the hardest and the most stressful. Hmm. So it's easy that that's the point when you know the brothers turned on each other. Hmm. You know you can imagine definitely Mark feeling all this pressure to to make another hit as big as Sultans of Swing. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you know pushing i'm sure his band members to go come on guys we gotta it's not good enough do it again and that that just kind of really creating a hotbed of tension yeah no yeah that makes sense but it was did that ever happen with any of the other members um did that drive any other members away yeah some other members have got have come and gone but i think it just it ultimately came down to creative differences and um and just wanting to move on to something else it was never like uh not that not any hate your guts not anything that i came across that's respectable yeah i suppose i would say the biggest the biggest blow up was between them two yeah now, I noticed that you mentioned they had six albums, and we're only talking about five on our six-song set. Yes, the the final record, mm-hmm. um, which is on every – it's a pretty good – I would say it's probably close to Communique with being their weakest record, but, but mm. I, there's still several songs on there that I really like. And mm-hmm. if we were to do a volume two on them, we would definitely get some stuff on there. There's there's no record that I would say avoid this record, or so or even any record where I'm just like there's only one or two good songs on here. So they had their first in in '79, yeah, and then no, seven, by the time they get to '85, they've had um, five albums, right? Yeah, '78 was the first record actually, and then it takes them ten more years to make that last one. Why did why it takes so long? Well, no, the, the last record came out in ninety one. Oh, but they but they broke up. They called off in ninety five or eighty. Yeah, they kind of they kind of uh, stretched out the tour for that last record, and did a lot of you know festival dates. And it was kind of like you could kind of tell that they knew that they weren't going to be around, so they just they they enjoyed the ride rather than like okay and and you know. This is going to be a nine-month tour, and that's it. They definitely toured for several years, mm-hmm. and kind of just had a had an extended farewell. Right, right. I mean, I guess, I guess my question is like, why did it take so long for that record? Was Brothers in Arms just so big, and they were? Just I think like, honestly, like rest, I, I get the feeling that he didn't really want to make that record. Or maybe was apprehensive to make 
I think that ultimately had brother and arms not been as big, they would have stayed together longer. I feel it feels Ooh. like as as great as it was for them as far as establishing their longevity and their legacy that it also ended up becoming the shadow that loomed over yeah. their heads. I feel like if I was going to make a guess, I feel like there was in the same way that their first record did so well and then their the record right after that was so stressful. Mm-hmm. I feel like he was putting that on himself a second time where he's like, oh crap, we just had another ex- insanely successful thing and now the next one, you know? Yeah, like reliving through like the the boom and bust of a success, like having a a successful I, song. I think, yeah, I think that he he didn't want to have another communique. Yeah, and another time period with the band that was so stressful. So that's probably why they took so long. Mm-hmm. Instead of being rushed on it, they were probably yeah. And I mean, at that point, they definitely earned the right to be able to. Uh, dictate how they were going to do things yeah you know they kind of won their freedom it's it's just it's very interesting it's it's kind of they they really adopted the quit while you're ahead mentality they didn't allow themselves (laughs) to end with making considerably more mediocre records right where there's this there's this gradual decline I mean, in my opinion, no one will have ever done that better than the police. Because mm-hmm. they literally made the biggest and best album of their career and then and then quit right there. Wow. Mm-hmm. wow. But, you know, it's 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 very similar. Mm-hmm. All right. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. I'm I think I'm starting to understand the dynamics here. And and from what I understand it's it's Mark who's writing everything. Oh yeah, he's it's Dire Straits is a band, but it's it's not a band in the same way that Led Zeppelin's a band. It's a band like how Megadeth is a band. Yeah, Mark Knopfler is by and far the driving force of the band. In a in a in a strange way, um, and I and I don't mean this to be mean at all, but just about everyone else in the band is replaceable. Mm-hmm. But it's like as soon as he quits, it's over. And when he did, it was over. Yep. I mean, yeah, it's just like the the band doesn't exist without Mark Knopfler. Right. And it's the reason why other band members have come and gone, and it hasn't affected. The trajectory of their music. He gets whoever he needs for the record. Is it is it the kind of come and go as like no? It's multiple people on the same tour. Or no, is it that extreme? No, but like you know, there's like he's he had several people that were only during the the mid to late eighties. Um, like his his bass player is the only person that stuck with him through the entirety of their history. Oh yeah, bass player. You can always count on your bass player. Mm-hmm. You always count. How about how many musicians rotated out? Is it in like the twenties? Oh no, I would say I think it's only like eight. There's, there's oh, okay. I always pick 
I was picturing like a real like revolving door. No, but at the same time, it's like you know he's there's a there's a mentality that he's just like you know at the end of the day I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that just you know that the the music that I want to make gets made. Cool. Cool. Which is how his solo career turned mm-hmm. out. All right. Well, if you don't have any other questions or things you want to bring up, then we'll go ahead and uh, get into the next segment and talk about some songs. Let's do it. All right. Let's we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the six songs that we have picked for this episode. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about Dire Straits, the band for this episode. And we're going to get into our second segment, which is our six songs segment. And uh, this is to introduce the band, but uh, why are we having this segment? I mean, we just talked about Dire Straits. Why can't you guys go listen to the songs on your own? Wouldn't that be (laughs) more productive, wouldn't you say? But, Lucas, why did you put this set together? So this set is meant to um, introduce you guys to Dire Straits to, if, say, you're not familiar with their uh, music, then this is going to be the best possible uh, first impression. It is going to let you know who they are as an artist and as a band and hopefully get you interested to go investigate them more. Maybe have some private investigations of your own. Investigations. <laughs> uh, also, I'm picking the songs so that way that they flow from start to finish, that the tr- they transition well between each other, and that by the end, hopefully, you have a significant emotional experience, a catharsis, if you will. So it's not just me picking what I think are the six best or even what my six favorites are. Um, it is going to be about introducing you to the artist as well as giving you a great emotional ride. And the way that you can go listen to these songs is there is a link in the description of the episode that goes to a Spotify playlist that has the songs, not just from this episode, but from all our previous episodes as well. So make sure you go check that out. And I think we should just go ahead and jump right in with the big song, the song that, um, continues to pay everyone's bills <laughs> oh literally they are continuing to get money for nothing that's true that's true and that is uh that is our first song they're they're I one number one single i want my mtv oh that's an intro that's an intro and, right and one of the most iconic lines of the 80s everyone's heard that at some point oh everyone yeah for sure, it's uh, it was it was surprising when I put this on. Was this uh, one of those ones you didn't know was by them? No, I knew it was by them, and so, but I had never heard like the full song. Oh and, yeah, you, instead you know, of the radio edit, instead of the radio edit, and so when it came on, and then you heard, you know, our special guest vocalist. This is really his volume three. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, this is the only song he's on, so well. I'd like this is volume two point five. Uh, yeah, or 
or 2.16 or whatever it is. Well, let me, before we say, Ethan, do you know who is singing uh, background on this song? Uh, I do not. <gasps> it's okay. Sting. It is Sting. Ooh. Yeah. Which is, which is quite, this. it's so weird that this is one of Sting's biggest songs, I would say. Oh, yeah. I'd agree with because that. It's somebody else's song. But also, it's like, this is a full-on collaboration effort. As soon as I heard, like, the intro, when he sings, like, I want my, you know, it's like, I know that this is money for nothing. Because there's no way... And I know it's Dire Straits. I know it's Money for Nothing, but I've never heard this before ever. Uh-huh. It, was, it was such a weird experience. Um, but of course, you know that you have that really ambient intro with. It's almost like, kind of starting up, right? I think mm-hmm. it was very good to put this at the beginning of the set. Because oh yeah, it definitely it definitely sets the mood. Yeah, right. The and then it comes strange... in with that riff, you know. Oh my god. Oh yeah. What a what a freaking great riff. It is. There was uh there's like an SNL skit that and Lemmy was in it too and he played a motorhead song for his his part of the skit, but um this guy's like, you know, going to court basically talking about how um this guitar like lesson booklet or whatever that has tabs in it can't teach him the songs. And so they all ask these different um these different musicians to like play a song that they wrote and then they put the book in front of them and say now play it and they're like oh and so the riff that mark used was money for nothing and it's just he's walking around you know grinning from ear to ear playing you know it was pretty funny and then he couldn't play with the book but (laughs) i don't think i've ever seen that sketch Uh, it's 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 pretty i mean obviously it is more funny if you kind of know like i know some of the musicians that i didn't recognize it didn't make a lot of sense but of course lemmy's part was hilarious to me because that's just you know it's how it is just things you're familiar with but um yeah so usually when i hear that song now i think of that skit i'm like ha guitar books (laughs) <laughs> so the reason that the main reason Sting gets a songwriting credit on this song is because that big line that I want my MTV is directly pulled from a police song called Don't Stand So Close to Me, which have you ever heard that song before? Yep. Yeah. But where so don't the... stand, don't stand so, don't stand so close to me. I mean, it's not completely the same, but it's it's it's. It's one of those ones to where, like, um, if Mark had used that without Sting being on the song, he could have gotten uh, a copyright uh, case saying, you stole my melody line. Because it's def- they definitely reminisce each other. Because Sting originally did not want a songwriting credit. Hmm. Because he didn't really write anything else in the song it was just that i want my mtv line yeah but because of the fact that it was coming from that line was from a song that he had already written his record label is just like you have to take a songwriting credit for it yeah which that ended up paying real big for him right exactly how did that it worked out just fine how did that whole like collaboration come about 
uh, they just happened to be in the same circles and we're just like, hey, you want to do a song together? Wow. It was just so, that simple. Yeah. One, like, okay. They were, again, they were both, they were both British. Uh, um, were they on the same label? Artists. Yes. Same, same era, same time frame. Um, at that point, the police had just broken up and I don't believe Sting had made his first solo record yet. And so I think it was honestly, it was just, I, I'm pretty sure they were friends beforehand and they just like, were like, Hey, you want to stop by and work on a song with me? Sure. Hmm. Now, um, the way the song was written was, is actually really cool and really funny. So another job that, uh, Mark Knopfler had before he made it big was as a reporter as a journalist and he was actually so you you guys know what the main premise of the song is right uh let's talk about that <laughs> so pretty much it's it's this the the narrator is uh an employee at a uh at a hardware hmm. or a or like like a sears like some a, an appliance store yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he's the the TVs are constantly playing MTV in in the store, and so he's just watching MTV while he's working and pretty much making fun of all the people on MTV. Just kind of like tell him just like that that whole line that ain't working. Just like you know, I've I'm working. I've got a real hard labor job. You know, I'm I've got a I've got to install microwave ovens, custom kitchen deliveries, got to move these refrigerators, got to move these color TVs. Like he's doing hard manual labor and working hard and making pretty much no money. Mm -hmm. And he's looking at all these people that are literally getting money for nothing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Listen, that guy ain't dumb. He'll maybe get a blister on his little finger and and just going man i should have learned to play the guitar yeah it's like a so little bit like, bitter so but much... also a little bit like dang it you know yeah mm-hmm. like he he wants to be them but he also hates them yeah so it's just kind of like you know and so the way that it was written was that this was a legitimate thing that mark knopfler overheard while he was in a hardware store he said that that this this anonymous guy literally wrote the entire song for him. That he wrote down what he was saying word for word. What? <laughs> that that's, was that's this, crazy. There was this old crotchety guy that was just like that was just talking to the TV, and Mark Knopfler just happened to hear him over here and was just like, "Ooh, this would be good." That's actually kind of funny. I know. They should credit him with the song too. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't think Mark ever figured out who he really was. It's actually kind of sad. I know. Because <laughs> wonder... now he's getting money for nothing based off of that dude's Yeah. It's, it's very ironic. So the whole song is meant the it's it's meant to kind of be a critique of MTV. Mm-hmm. Like it's not meant to be this this you know, empty, glorious praise of it, which I mean, hopefully knowing Jire Straits, you would never think that, 
But at the same time, it's one of those ones to where it's a critique of MTV, and at the same time, it allowed them to be part of the MTV machine. Because mm-hmm. that music video is also one of the most defining aspects of this song. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. <laughs> I, I've i heard a lot about it. It's got... It's the first music video to ever use a full 3D CGI. Like, it's like the very beginning of computer animation. Wow. And then it intercuts with uh, shots of them playing live. And it, and it's actually creating the scene that he's talking about. It, it takes place in this, uh, in this store. And and Dire Straits is playing on those TVs that they're walking past. It's very, it's very um, crude because I mean it's 1985, right? Like we're this is still 10 years before Toy Story, right? And so you know this this is the very first computer animation ever being made, but it still works surprisingly well. Well, I mean they got the money for it mm-hmm. so. I mean, at the time yeah that was state of the art at the time that was a revolutionary video it's the reason why it you know it won video of the year it's just because like it was a big step forward in in innovation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i'll have to watch it then because i mean i've always like heard that it's oh hey the money for nothing music video is pretty good and i'm like i'm not really that type of person to listen to music videos unless it like gives you more of the story, you know, especially the audio. The audio is more interesting. Um, I wouldn't say it gives you more of the story, but it's one of those ones where it's historically where it's just, yeah, where it's just in and of itself is a work of art. That's another thing too. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, this song is iconic. If anyone listening to this episode has not heard Money for Nothing, I'm so sorry. And you should listen to it. Because yeah. your life will be better. Mm-hmm. I agree. This, this is the kind of song that you can, like, put at, like, half loud volume in your, like, 2005 Chevrolet 100,000 mile coupe and put on your cheap sunglasses and, like, still be cool. You, you know? can wear sunglasses at night. Yeah, that too, yeah. Wait, is that a Dire Straits song too? No. Okay, whoa. I was that, that's a, a one-hit wonder. I can't I remember. To have a whoa moment. Okay. Man. Okay. Yeah, this song is really chill. Yeah, it's it's chill. It's It's got a long, you know, freeform jam section, which is, that's very Dire Straits. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, even in a song like this, it's still got their, their, it's, you don't hear this and go, man, I can't believe Dire Straits wrote a song that sounds like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so it's still I, got signature stamp to it. Yeah. I don't remember it ever being this long, but also oh. when you look at the time, it's like 826, but mm-hmm. when you listen to it, you know. First of all, that intro is going to take up about 90 seconds. Yeah. And then you also have an extended jam section where, like, there's different things coming in and out and doing their own little special funkiness. And there's so many different melodies to this song 
that when you mm -hmm. kind of mix and match them together, the combinations are really endless and they kind of become their own, you know, creations in and of themselves. It's really weird how it's so simple. And it's just the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. Like every time he sings it, every time they loop through it, it's like... Every time you hear that guitar line, that guitar line is just like, is infinite. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> you literally listen to a 10-hour loop of it and, and enjoy mm -hmm. it every time. And that keyboard, right? Oh, man. The bow, bow. Bow, bow. Banner. Yeah, that that I think is the that's the part that I as a kid remembered the most mm -hmm. when it would when it would play and be like, ooh yeah, cool keyboard part. Wow. Eighties <laughs> pixels computers. Eighties. Eighties everywhere. <laughs> yeah, we, but the other weird thing is though, is I never was able to marry it in my mind that Dire Straits was both an eighties band. And they also wrote Sultans of Swing mm -hmm. because Sultans of Swing to me sounded like 60s. It's so weird, but I mean that that's that's a little intentional, right? We 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 can talk about that later, but it's just <laughs> it was so weird. It yeah. is, I guess, it's showing their diversity. Yeah, I mean we're only in the first song, so we're we're about to see a whole lot more. Yeah. But um. Ethan, was there anything you wanted to throw in there? No, I was. I think on the, a lot of these songs, I'm just more interested in the story of the lyrics because, like, the music oh, is yeah. like really good and the sounds are. We sometimes come across these bands where it's like the song is good. There's not really like a ton to analyze. It's like we were just saying, like, man, that guitar part is just great. It's like, yeah, it is. It's like that's pretty much the whole song is the guitar line. It's like built off of that and the story of the lyrics. So. No, I mm -hmm. think everything's covered. I'm ready. I'm ready to know about the next one. All right. All right. So we are now going to our second song, which is "Lady Writer." Lady Writer. This, this is off of the uh, their second record. That one that I was saying was was not their most well received record. This was actually supposed to be the big follow up to Sultans of Spring in particular. Oh, this is this is the big single off of that album. That but makes I didn't sense. Know that I it, I didn't know that at the time that I was picking the songs. I think that this is the best song on the album. Oh, and I didn't even t tell you oh, guys yeah, where we go in the rankings. I always forget this. <laughs> uh, I put "Money for Nothing" at number four. Whoa. Okay. And "Lady Riders" at number ten. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, um, Lady Rider is off of Communique and Lady Rider on the TV screen as well. Mm -hmm. On the MTV screen. <laughs> yes, but MTV wasn't around yet because this is 79. Okay, well, yeah. <laughs> um, so you kind of touched a little bit on the story. Like this is supposed to be the, the prequel or the prequel, the sequel to uh, Sultans of Swing. And that mm -hmm. makes sense because, you know, when like, it first started playing and I was listening to the set. I'm like, Ooh, here we go. Sultans of swing, everybody. And then it wasn't, you know, because it's like, I'm not, yeah, obviously I'm familiar with Sultans of swing, but it's not like I know it note for note. And so I was like, Hmm, you know, maybe it's going to be Sultans of swing. And then it wasn't. 
And I'm like, I was waiting for him to say Sultans of Swing and then do the thing and never did. Mm-hmm. And then after I got to the end of the set, I'm like, huh. It's like, it's the same song. And that's what made me think that like, because obviously when we go through the first half of the set, all three of these songs are kind of one side, like you said. And mm-hmm. then um, that that kind of made me think that Dire Straits was one dimensional, you know, for that first half. And fortunate, fortunately enough, that's not the case. But um, you kind of did touch on the fact that you know it's the sequel to Sultans of Swing. But what's the what's the story of the song itself? So what we're gonna find is a uh, a recurring theme, and the way that Mark Knopfler puts together songs is that it's usually always um, around either things that he's observing or things that has happened to him. He's not someone that conjures up stories. Mm-hmm. He writes about his life. Very he, Yeah. He, and also, like, you know, he's not, you know, oh, I read this great story. I want to make an adaptation of it. Or, like, how the killers write about realistic stuff, but he's not all the time writing about his life. He, he definitely uh, creates characters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Knopfler does not do that so this song really actually doesn't have a lot of story around it he did say that it was inspired by a lady he did see on the TV uh, what who she was we we actually don't know mm-hmm. um, but he just said that there was a you know just kind of like a, a TV infatuation mm-hmm and um, kind of just the – I think it also just addresses the uh, the sexism in general of of television of that time. Kind of like he's, he's kind of talking to her like he's not really interested in her mind, just is interested in her looks and her face. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's really focusing um, – on who she is physically like he's like he's just like yeah i'm sure that you uh know all all what you're talking about that you're qualified for a job he's like but i i don't really care and i think that what he's doing is he's not speaking about himself specifically but he's kind of like in the position of the normal tv viewer yeah that most people don't really care about what she has to say he's just they're just you know they want to have a pretty face to look at because mm-hmm. you know i think it it could be easy to look at it and go oh mark knopfler you're being such a brutish man mm-hmm. but when you look at the all the other things he writes he's told he's definitely trying to make a statement about something mm-hmm. and so i think that that's what he's uh that what he's trying to get across with this, but it was the initial inspiration was by an actual woman that he saw on television, but people have speculated on who it is. We don't have a for sure answer. That's, that's kind of, that's kind of a big brain 4d chess play (laughs) of of making a song to kind Uh of like, to totally not even allude to any real, like ironic nature of the song. And yet, it still is. Yeah. Uh-huh. Takes a little bit of art. I think musically, 
the big takeaway here is he's a fast guitar player. Yes. Yeah, so there there is an intentional play here on on the second song. So if you notice, yes, the there's some great guitar work in Money for Nothing, but there's we don't we don't have a solo really. Mm-hmm. I mean we we do have that extended jam section, but it's he doesn't really like start to really show off yet. And um, also, you know, we're we're gonna get that big moment in uh, our next song. So this song, I kind of wanted to have as the introduction to kind of go, oh, wait a second, Mark Knopfler, he's a great guitar player. Mm -hmm. Um, As well as I was very aware that um, that this and Sultans for Swing have a lot sonically in common. Mm -hmm. And so I'm definitely, you know, it's it's helping us get to that point. It does sound so strange, like hearing it not played with a pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like no, so it, unique. It's really weird. It's why it's why he's one of the notoriously most difficult uh, artists to try and play their songs. It's because yeah. You, you you already are at a disadvantage of because there's certain things that become exponentially tougher because of the fact that you're likely not mm-hmm. uh, playing the way he's playing. Mm-hmm. It's it's also weird. It's like I originally, you know, when I listened to this song and he's you know soloing at the end, whatever, it's fast and whatever, and he's all in time. But I had thought he was kind of like playing with a pick. It's just his hands were out of sync, which is like that's a common thing. And so I'm like, oh, it's just like I guess it's where guitar was at the time. But then if you put it in context of like the fact that he's playing with his fingers it's like that's peak performance for finger picking mm-hmm. that's like this is what peak performance sounds like i'm not yeah. even joking it's like that's intense because you know when you're when you're playing with your fingers you have to mute the strings before you play again you know by pretty much by definition that's what you have to do and mm-hmm. so it's just like but that little those little pauses kind of make the um kind of make the notes sound more like a flurry of notes yeah sound more fast kind of like how uh when you're when you're palm muting in metal and you're playing a really fast riff it's almost very staccato and so that you know is what makes um things like the the ending riff of one sound that much more intense if it was just a blast of sound no one would care about that song really mm-hmm um, and I think that that's kind of the same way here is that like, that's what made me pick up on it because it's like, Ooh, it's just like, it's kind of funky. Yeah. It's a really clean tone. Like, oh yeah. Such a clean yeah. tone to get such good performance out of it is also impressive pick or no pick. Yeah. And not just the solo, but all the little flurries that he does in between. Mm-hmm. Are so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really tasty. Tasty. Uh, he's man. There's there's some other stuff. There's when you especially listen to that first record. There's some just some of the nastiest guitar playing. Mm, I like that. Just <laughs> a school teacher, man. Got to watch out for yeah. those teachers. Mm-hmm. 
I think that this is a really underrated song. I think that it's unfortunate that it has the tag of kind of being Sultan for swings, Sultans of swing. <laughs> I, I say it the way that my four-year-old son says it. <laughs> Sultans for swing. Yeah, Sultans for swing. Um, I think that it it's unfortunate that that's kind of like its legacy because I think that this is an incredible song. It is. I mean, to be fair, though, even whenever I listened to it, I was like, this is a Sultans of Swing, like, copy. Mm-hmm. Like, all of the, even, like, all of the sounds and all of the, core, like, even, like, the way that they're doing the chord changes and the pushes that they're doing and the way that he's singing, it's so <laughs> similar to Sultans of Swing. Yeah, but I think also, in a way, that is part of their overall sound. I don't... Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean... There, it does creep in the fact that you know that this was meant to be the next. Like Sultans of Swing was the big one, and then they're just trying to get another easy win. Yeah, but I personally really like this song. Like, like I said, I when I first listened through this album, I didn't know what the the big single Mm -hmm. was on this, and I picked this out as when I got through the record. I was like, this, this is the standout song to me. And then I put, and I went ahead and, and I was just like, and I really think this would fit well as a second song. So I put it on there. And then afterwards at the research, I was just like, oh, this makes more sense now. Mm-hmm. I'm finding that so much when I just go off of my gut instinct that ends up having much <laughs> more uh, reason behind it than I mm-hmm. intend. Yeah, mm-hmm. like I accidentally come across the the perfect song for what I'm wanting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it thematically works without me intending it to. Yeah, I do think it's a good. You said you ranked it number ten. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a good. I think it's a good number ten. If this is number ten, we better have a strong top ten. <laughs> I'm interested in the next one. If, if I'm interested in the next one as well. All right, we're ready. This this is the one that many people are going to be here to see and that's sultans of swing oh yeah oh yeah every cover band in tulsa's dire straits pick yeah and i'm <laughs> sure none of them are living up to its <laughs> pedigree yeah. no put, it's yeah, not at all i put this at number two Ooh. Ooh. even uh, way ab- well okay way above the two to four jump is a pretty big jump I would say for any band. So that's way above money for nothing. Is the number one in the set? Yes, it is. Ooh, I bet I know what it is. And I bet I agree. Um, but no, yeah, this is actually a bit slower. I think than lady Rider, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it is ever so slightly, ever so slightly. So what's the story behind Sultans for swing? Sultans for Swing. That's gonna, what it's going to officially be. It's going to be from now on. It's just, don't fight it. <laughs> um, this was a real experience that Mark Knopfler had at a jazz club. Oh, which is? So get into the story. I'm, I'm interested in the lyrics. So um, starts off with the uh, narrator walking through the rain. 
Um, and he walks by this old dingy bar and he hears jazz music being played. Like it's just a, a local club having a jazz night. Mm-hmm. And so he being a jazz fan walks in and he just sees this, like this dingy old group playing and like no one in the bar is paying attention to them except for Mark. Mm-hmm. And um, he just, he found it so striking that, you know, this band really doesn't even care that the audience is not paying attention to them. It's just something that they do for themselves for fun. And he thought it was hilarious that after like no one was paying attention to him, that the singer just steps and goes, thank you. We're Sultans of swing. Good night. Hmm. And, and he was, and first off he was just like the type of jazz they were playing, there was no swing in it, which is why he doesn't have any swing in, uh, the song that he's playing <laughs> it's meant to be an intentional um kind of homage to the band he watched that dared to call themselves sultans of swing and they weren't swinging <laughs> he the, and and you can kind of get hints in the way that they're um they're playing that they're playing maybe more of a bop style mm. the band's mm-hmm. blowing dixie double four time playing mm. the honky tonk you know that's not that's not as much you know music that you would necessarily have swing to right and so he just he just he just found the whole experience very funny yet at the same time like kind of sad because he's like no one was paying attention to this great band yet at the same time like you can tell the band really was okay with it <laughs> And especially at the time, like you've got that line of there's a crowd of young boys that were fooling around the corner. They don't give a damn about any trumpet playing band. It ain't what they call rock and roll. Mm-hmm. This was, you know, this was mid 70s when this would have happened. So this is definitely a point where jazz was on its downward as far as popularity yeah. for probably the first time in its life. Because usually, until then, some form of jazz was at least, you know, very Mm -hmm. popular. And once you get to the mid-70s, you know, that's kind of when jazz really starts to move towards the corner. And everything is some kind of rock and roll. Mm -hmm. Which, and there's also some irony in that, the fact that, you know, that's where rock and roll comes from. Yeah. Jazz has a lot to do with rock and roll's creation, and mm-hmm. so you know it's it's very it's very much kind of you know about the ignorance of um what mm-hmm. what is happening, mm-hmm. and 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 ultimately Mark Knopfler coming in is just like he's he's a fan of this music, mm-hmm. so um. My son Harry loves this song because it, it actually says his name in the song, which I never really noticed until he brought it up. Because we were, I was listening to the song and he said, oh, "They said my name." Wait, really? Yeah, Harry doesn't mind if he doesn't make the scene. He's got a daytime job. He's doing all right. Oh, I remember that whole line. I didn't even pick up on that. Yeah. So is this his favorite song? Um, I won't say until we get to final thoughts because I'm I'm gonna make that a new uh right. staple Harry's of our episode. Harry, I mean, if it says his name, 
Well, he I also like... really he also really loved Money for Nothing. That's uh, true. He he it was it's really funny hearing him talk about chicks for free. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, I can see that. So, I'll leave you in suspense on on which one he officially picked cuz I really made him think about it. I got I got to say there's some there's some great nuances to Sultans of Swing that really shows the both the both the good writing and the good musicianship. This like, is such a unique sounding song in classic rock. Yeah, and nothing and, nothing else sounds like it. And it's executed very well. Like there's little guitar licks here and there that are in like fancy harmonic minor keys and oh, there's yeah. like little drum fills you know all over the place but it's not like crazy big like drum fills from like the 80s you know or something mm-hmm. it's just kind of like the drums doing something cool for like half a measure yeah oh yeah i like i love the my favorite little lick is the one where he goes that oh yeah that one that one yeah. one of the one of the last ones he does yeah my i didn't really notice like there was too much drum stuff until it was kind of toward the end when he goes like and then goes back to whatever he's doing mm-hmm. like, wow yeah. but it didn't take up the entire mix it was just kind of like it's kind of like they were jamming in like a jazz club or something in a way it's like they were all feeding off of each other's like licks mm-hmm. sort of. and not necessarily trying to one-up each other but but kind of trying to build off of each other and it was weird but it's like in a very not jazz way but still kind of like like you said kind of like an homage to the original experience uh-huh which makes sense now that you explain it but um and it's it's also from a compositional standpoint like this song is very um nuanced in the fact that that you know as soon as he sings sultans of swing there's like the chord changes aren't really in time at all, but they sound very just melodic. You know, Can we also talk about the fact that this is one of the greatest non-lyrical choruses probably ever? Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's really good. That's a good chorus. Like, there's yeah. no words in the chorus, that, and it's so iconic. This song not having a chorus. I, I mean, it, it. It, it does have a chorus, it just doesn't have words. Oh, yeah. That's like, that's almost like power metal level of chord construction, but this is 1979. 78. 78. Yeah. That's intense. Also, not only do you have one of the best wordless choruses ever, but also one of the most legendary and revered guitar solos of all time. That that second solo. Now yeah. I didn't know that that was the case. Oh yes, this is this is wildly um, revered as one of the great classic rock guitar solos. I can I can pull up the list and and see exactly where it lists, but I'm pretty sure it's like it's pretty close to the top. Really? Hmm. Okay, I wouldn't. I wouldn't picture it. Honestly, I wouldn't put it above. If I had to guess above or below fifty, I would. I would have guessed below. Like not in the top fifty. I would have guessed it's in the top one hundred, but not in the top fifty. Well, uh, while while I search for it, you guys can throw in any other uh, 
um, things that you guys were picking up from the song. I guess I, I, I'm wondering. We haven't heard as much from you yet. With the with the guitar solo specifically, what other albums were coming out like around this time? Um, this would have been this. This was the same year as Van Halen one. Mm-hmm. Um, this would have been the same time as Boston, and um, this would also have been the time of Hotel California. Man, then I guess I probably would have been with Grant. Like, I think that this guitar solo is good, but like in comparison to like all the other things that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe Dire Straits fits it like in a nice little spot in that in those people, you know, like no one was covering the same sonic space that Dire Straits was, even though the yeah, it's it's very unique. I think that that's the biggest thing about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're if you're not unique, then don't make music, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. That may sound a little bit harsh of me, but. If you're not unique, what are you doing? Fortunately, Dire Straits is unique. Yes, they are. And they're gonna they're about to get more unique. But we're only on song three. Mm-hmm. I'm just so excited for the second half. Can you tell? Yes, I can't tell. <laughs> this is this is probably gonna shape up to be my favorite well, I don't know about that, but one of my favorite second halves of of the podcast. Yeah, so. Uh, so so I just found it. It's number seven. It's number seven? Mm-hmm. What is, what's the stuff above it? Um, It is Sweet Child of Mine, Hotel California, oh, Stairway to Heaven, um, Eruption, and the website will not let me load the rest of it because it's having trouble sweet child of mine is wow i can't believe okay wow see i would have mm. <laughs> i don't know what i think about that but that's a whole nother discussion i don't know what i think about putting sweet child of mine so high well i mean i understand why it is well, it's because it's iconic, but yeah. is it like, is it iconic because it's iconic, or is it iconic because of its actual composition? You know, mm-hmm. do we just all do we just all like it because we like it, right? It's like you have to. There uh, has to be a comfortably numb. Yeah, that definitely deserves. That's true. There, um, all along the watchtower, like it's yeah. It's the ones you expect. But like Sultans for Swing, which I'm going to just continue to call it that apparently. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sultans of Swing. I think that it – I think it de- deserves to be there. I think it's I think it's really well constructed. I think that it, it reveals true. its melodic uh, phrasings in the right way. It, like the whole – and the whole solo builds that great – fast moment where everything just kind of releases. Oh, that is true. Mm-hmm. I think it builds to it very nicely to where it is a catharsis moment. And I 
I really do start to see like, yes, we have the big catharsis moment that we build towards the end, but I always usually try and find like the third song as being like a catharsis for the first half. Yeah. And I think that it works well for that. It 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 does. It does. So now I guess we can feel like we can take things a little slower. Kinda yeah. Break things down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because you can't really continue to go with those kinds of songs after Sultans of Swing. It's kind of like it definitely feels like a a period, and it's like you have to move in a new direction now. Right. And we, we are should, uh... with our fourth song, Private Investigations. Oh. Or as my son calls it, the spooky song. It is the spooky song. <laughs> Which ever ever since two thousand light years from home when he that was the original spooky song. And now, uh, and now, anytime there's an atmospheric song in any of our sets, it's always the spooky song. This one is like, it's on that border. It's on that sweet spot border between being atmospheric and being like, for lack of a better term, prog. Even though like this isn't prog, it's like, it's very experimental. It's like, it's somewhere between music well, okay, it's definitely on me on the music side, but it's it's edging very close to being soundscape. Yeah, um, because there there are points where it's just it's pretty much just sound, and there's really no instruments other than keyboards. But I think it's done very well, and I think it's still done within the musical realm. Oh yeah, which this is important. to me, this is the kind of song that's like you know you can't have the excuse of a song uh like oh all atmospheric mood songs just aren't as good mm -hmm. i think this is this is shows that you can write a great mood piece that really is not structured like a song mm -hmm. but is more meant to create a feeling so what is it about so pretty much this was inspired by uh, Mark Knopfler's love of noir films. <laughs> kind of, I got that feeling. So, oh my he, God. so pretty much, you know, this this is actually one of the few times where it's not based on a specific event in his life. He just really loved the, uh, you know, just those movies and that art style and you know, a soundtrack to that scene where it's, you know, it's nighttime, it's the blinds are down in the, in the investigator's office and just kind of like create a soundtrack to the dark seedy underbelly of uh, early 1900s America. This is just, that's just insane because as I listen to this song, that's the, like the images in my head that showed up is exactly what you just described. Mm-hmm. That's scary. Which means that he did his job absolutely yeah, correctly. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. He did. He did good. But man, yeah, it's... there's there's so much interesting, so many interesting sounds here. Oh yeah, I love just the random um, exclamation points where the guitars will just come in and then just go right back out. Mm. Mm hmm. The, the the electric guitars. Yeah. Uh huh. Ooh, oh yeah towards the end yeah mm -hmm. and the all the acoustic stuff is really tasteful yeah i love the acoustic playing on this 
Mm-hmm. So I put this at number six on the list. Wow. Is this seems like it'd be the it'd be one of the uh, one of the fan favorites. Yeah, this is a song that it's probably likely that this got played at that. That I yeah. checked out on, like it's to me, it's these kinds of songs that I expect that he's probably putting in his solo sets, mm-hmm. and not the money for nothings and the Sultans of Swing. Mm-hmm. That's like these are the ones that he probably wants to play. Oh, and I don't, I don't blame him. I mean, songs that tell a story more than give you a melody. It, it, there's something that's. It's got more re-listen value, mm-hmm. you know, because you want to get that feeling again, yeah, and kind of have those images in your in your head again. Like, not to talk like an addict, you know, want to get that feeling again, but like, you know what I mean? That it's Taste like the dragons. Yeah, it, well, yeah, and I don't know. It's like the way that they, you know, the whole band was able to pull this off. I think was was pretty impressive and obviously it's not going to be like a big radio hit and you're not going to you know introduce somebody you know to dire straits with this being the first song right i think that's why this is the fourth you know but it's just this is a whole nother side of dire straits that i did not even predict was going to be this was the part that was really fun to start digging into because this is when I started to realize that they're not just a radio rock group, that they have a serious auteur side to them. I would say even more so than, say, Springsteen does. Because Springsteen is very much like the the lyrics are going to be the real thing that pushes the songs forward. And while Dire Straits' lyrics are great... At the end of the day, it's actually the guitar that's going to be the driving force of most of their songs. Yeah. It's just like – it's like the, the lyrics are the are a wonderful bonus that you also mm. get to have great lyrics. But the guitar playing is what pushes – so you can have a song like this where the lyrics are much more sparse, but you get to have all this great guitar um, interplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I just oh, there's just so much space to every instrument, mm-hmm. and the piano. Oh man, yeah, the piano. Oh yeah, I want to cut the it. It's very, it's almost Aladdin Sane esque. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I can see that, but uh, it's it's definitely a mood piece. Yes, it is. It does a really good job of bringing you from that noir, like, I guess it still kind of stays in the noir, but, like, the in- the intensity change, like, there's a definite shift, you know? Mm-hmm. Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Listening through this, it was just... Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it did it, a job. It, it doesn't kill that mood in a way that, you know, some more modern prog... Yeah, they would just shift their, so their mood crazy. Theme. Yeah, where it's like, we're kind of like, Ethan, why you didn't like Livia Strangiato? Because it was like that down section. It was kind of like, 
the soloing and whatever and it was all very atmospheric and stuff and then they went into that heavy riff and you're like oh well that was it's fun like, I, guess, I guess we're done with that whole idea right and it's like here it's like they kind of stay in that mood but there's still like a a progression yeah. and it kind of gets bigger as you go yeah there's a it's a but, it's taking the idea and progressing on right. it instead of just being like that was a cool idea let's do something new it never gets so big that um that it kind of loses that mood and that's some that's one of the flaws i think exists just with the prog genre that i actually kind of am okay with and i actually kind of like because being unexpected is one of the things i like about progressive music but what if Dire Straits were to do that? I don't think that, that this song would be what it is because it's not really the point. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. not really the point of private investigations. Yeah, so, a whole album with this would be kind of kind of boring, but mm, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. Would a whole album <laughs> of this be boring? It'd be a great soundtrack album. It'd be yeah. Well, yeah, I would. You know that Miles Davis French movie soundtrack, maybe. And that's like. exactly what I kind of what i thought of whenever we were talking i was just like well it's it's meant to be moody and like but this shows that you can be moody and still be really musically interesting Ooh, so kind of like i That's guess miles davis's song isn't really that okay. yeah like like with the the interrogation of julian where we're just like well it's meant to be a tense interrogation scene yeah it doesn't need to be musically good because it's just supposed to be atmospheric I right after we did that, I heard the song, and and that was the first thing I thought. I was just like, that you can't use that as an excuse yeah. now. Mm-hmm. We've now seen how how good it can be of something that is very much meant to convey more of an atmosphere, and yet is still very musically rich. Mm-hmm. So expect that uh, argument now. Whenever we're talking about worse songs and we try, I'll just say private investigations. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> that really, that really undoes a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, after after this, I think we need to get to our. Unless you guys have anything else, I'm excited to get to the next song. Oh yeah, yeah. The 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 titan of the set. Ooh. Telegraph this, Road. This is such yeah. Telegraph Road is such a. Telegraph Road and our final song are very Springsteen. Yes, that especially was especially Telegraph Road. This is the one the the most that reminded me of Springsteen. It just it sounds like something off of Born to Run, like except for the fact that just the, the all of the crazy guitar stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well. Because just you won't, I feel like you wouldn't find that on Springsteen, where you have, you know, it's going to be more sax. If you're going to have the a long interlude, it'll be saxophone or kind of a whole band together, maybe a keyboard. But I think that that's one of the biggest things that separates uh, Springsteen and and Knopfler is that he turns to the guitar as kind of like his big driving force. Mm-hmm. But the, the lyrics are very Springsteen and and just the whole approach to the song. Mm-hmm. You know what's something crazy? Mm. What? This is the 
opening song to Love Over Gold. Ooh. They open the <laughs> album with this song. Okay. okay. Like this is this isn't this isn't a end of the album epic. So the this started out with the epic. Yep. And this is not the only one of their albums that does this. Their previous album, Making Movie, starts off with a nine-minute song called Tunnel of Love. <laughs> that I think is also one of their best songs. Well, dang. By the way, I put this song at number one. Yes. Ooh, yes, I was you not did. expecting this. Yes, you did put it at number one. I just I think that you can't deny the scope of this song and how brilliantly it achieves every second of it. It's I just I think that it's so difficult to make a 14 minute long song where every second is not only essential but amazing. I yeah. think it's I think it's it's more impressive to write a song like that than to write a five-minute song that is the same way. Mm-hmm. Like, Sultans for Swing perfectly executes every second of its six-minute run. Yeah. Yeah. But Telegraph Road also does that, but it's able to do it for 14 minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. And so to me, it's just like, I just, I don't know how you can, uh, how you can dispute that. Mm-hmm. But it was the top three. I feel are all like just about equal with each other, right? And um, it just it comes down to literally like splitting hairs. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's also like this song is like like you said, it's more impressive because it's like it's fourteen minutes long and it still holds your attention. But it also is like it tells – I think the lyrics here – and I don't know the full extent of the lyrics, and I think we should talk about that. But yeah. it feels like there's something like deeper being said as well as there's just a good story that's happening. Yeah. Pretty much the – so the inspiration for it was um, them on the road touring and Mark being on the tour bus and actually going down uh, a road called Telegraph Road. Mm-hmm. And it was the middle of the night and he just felt like he's he was like it was a road that never ended. Mm-hmm. As far as like the way that the city was built, he he said he felt like it was built very linearly. <laughs> like it was just like they kept just building along the road and just making mm-hmm. the longer and longer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so he just he he had this idea of just like how would what would have this felt like for the people that were there in the beginning before all of this stuff was built. Mm-hmm. And so that was what the what the idea of the story came from. So pretty much the song tells the story of someone that moves there to be a farmer to have a place of seclusion, um, and then uh slowly the place that was once kind of his land is taken over by businesses and institutions and corporations that pretty much come in and like suck the land dry mm. and 
um, I'll, I'll pull up the lyrics here so I can get some definitive uh, lines here because it's it's really quite amazing some of the stuff he's saying. Um, so yeah, he, the the first verse, you know. A long time ago came a man on a track walking 30 miles with a sack on his back and he put down his load where he thought it was best. He made a home in the wilderness. So it's pretty much someone that's trying to get away and just yeah. have his own place where he can do what he wants. But then came the churches, then came the schools, then came the lawyers, and then came the rules. Mm-hmm. So pretty much every, people follow him. Then mm-hmm. the mines, the ore then there were hard times and there was war. So pretty much once, uh, once the land is discovered to be profitable in his mind, that's when everything goes wrong. Mm -hmm. I used to like to go to work, but they shut it down. I've got a right to go to work, but there's no work here to be found. We're going to have to reap from some seed that's been sowed. And so, just, you know, it's just the place that he loved, the place that he went to have a simple life has now been complicated and has Mm. been destroyed by big business, by um, opportunists, by governments, by uh, religious and educational systems that, you know, tell you what you can and can't do. Mm -hmm. And so at the end, he's... Uh, wishing that he can now get out of that town. Yeah. The birds up on the wires and the telegraph poles, they can always fly away from this rain and this cold. Because mm-hmm. I've run every red light on memory lane. I've seen desperation explode into flames. And I don't want to see it again from all these signs saying, sorry, but we're closed all the way down the telegraph road. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, this is this, lyrically, the song is just brilliant. It's so poetic, but again, it's it's telling the story of a small town it's that, just, that, uh, has, that has become too big for its own good. This song just, oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, there's still more in there. No, so that's pretty much like the 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 gist of the so there's no happy ending in this song he we don't know if he gets out pretty much he's just it's it's a it's a story of innocence lost for himself and for the land that he um tried to make his own you know in a weird way like lyrically and i think even his voice sounds very Springsteen but it's such high quality production mm-hmm. it almost sounds like like a mid 90s GNR song it sounds like it belongs on um, on Use Your Illusion or something <laughs> or Lose Your Illusions or whatever but um, I don't know something about it it's like it's very it sounds like there's some some really good interplay between the piano and the guitar that I think was very um, iconic, at least in my mind. It was very um, prevalent in a lot of that GNR stuff of that era. You want to know something insane? What? 
um, the piano player on that record was the same one that played on Born to Run. Ooh. No way. No way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that Ball makes run. a lot of sense. I'm telling that you, it's weird how these connections just happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but wow. we, I'll keep, we keep saying, oh, yeah, it sounds like this, and then we find out, oh, well, no wonder. No wonder, because, you know, it is, yeah. Oh, man. The... I same same on this as private investigation. I like the turn, you know. I like uh, that it it just intensifies and intensifies into that guitar solo. Oh yeah, that that ending jam is yeah, just it's good. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's all just it's set. You're right. It's set up perfectly, but like that whole section is kind of it kind of replays through the whole song in the way that it like it, it starts off pretty low, you know, mm-hmm. and it's got that, that string slash keyboard slash whatever it is in the background playing the chords and you got those off time hits and whatever. And it's kind of like, it's, it's, I don't know how to describe the way that the, the chord chemistry is. It just feels like, it feels like what the album cover is portraying, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, it is the perfect cover for this record. It's the perfect cover. I was just thinking about that. I'm like, there's no, like, you imagine this with the cover of, like, Brothers in Arms. It's like, it's not the same. Uh-huh. It's almost like the cover itself adds to the mood of the song. It fits Private Investigations perfectly as well. Yeah. Right? And But you can't, I don't know. It's like, it's so weird that it's like opening up this whole thing about cover art now that like you really don't <laughs> ever think about. Um, wow. Man, I like this podcast because you, you get to talk about cover art and how that affects the mood of songs. Mm-hmm. You, things you don't really think about. So, but yeah. yeah, this 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 song is a journey. And normally yeah. this is a song that you know, you would think, oh, this would be the final song of the set. Mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of do something a little uh, different, a little, little unexpected, and I, I think that it works. You'll have to let me know if you Ooh. think. It works. Take us there. So the final song of the set is Romeo and Juliet. This song, I, I am a noob. I knew nothing about Dire Straits and Lucas. You thought this. A killer song. I did. I thought that they wrote this because it was on uh, the Sawdust record. I uh, I I didn't know it was originally them. So when I did uh, Killers research, mm -hmm. I remember thinking that that was one of the best songs on that record. I was just like, oh my gosh, wait, at the end of this album is a really great song. Yeah, I was like, (laughs) I remember being like, man, but it's it fits in there. Again, we talked about how how closely the killers were related to um you know I can't forget uh Bruce Springsteen. And so I was like it just in the way that like, oh let's talk about like hometown people, you know? Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that this would be in the this feels like a song that they would write, you know? Yeah. But alas it wasn't. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this is a Dire Straits original, right? This was the this yes. Is like, this doesn't have a long history of being covered. No. Well, I mean, it's been covered since they wrote it. Yeah. This is kind of like this is the song that has become like, um, it has become like kind of like the fan favorite. Really, and and this is also Mark Knopfler's favorite song that he ever made. What? It's a good song, though. It's I a, mean, it is a good. This song, is, I mean, but but, but like yeah. songwriting wise, songwriting wise, I think that this is very very. Even though I think Telegraph Road takes the cake in terms of like the complete picture, you know, mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet is a lyrical freaking juggernaut even if the music isn't as good as it was on telegraph road yeah that's that's i think that this is this is his peak lyrically and that's why i put it at number three. Oh wow i feel oh, my Lord, we got the top four yep we do um i think that you could if you really wanted to make a any of those three being in the top spot depending on what way you wanted to present it I think that you could be fair in saying so because I just I think that there's just there's just a a beautiful serenity to this song yeah it just it captures the mood that it's going for so effortlessly Mm-hmm. I love that. I love all the guitar in this song. It's just, it's so stately. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I love kind of like, it's it's not trying to retell Romeo and Juliet, which I think that whenever artists try and do that, I feel like it's like, you didn't need to do that. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's, it's, it's a cliche at this point. But they use it as a cliche in a good way for Dire Straits. Uh huh. Like I love, I love kind of like the the offhandedness of it with the "Hey, la, my boyfriend's back." Yeah. And like he's like you think like he starts off with the love struck Romeo, and you think he's going to go the poetic Shakespeare route, mm-hmm. but then immediately kind of like goes into more simple terms, like the fact that he comes in with. You know, you think he's going to say something super meaningful, and all he says is, you and me, babe, how about it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's something so, like, genuinely endearing about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, the, the way he delivers the vocal is just pitch perfect. Mm-hmm. I think that Mark Knopfler's voice just suits this this lyric so well. Mm-hmm. There's just there's just a there's such a I'm gonna use the word again just genuine feeling about it the the emotion bleeds through so effortlessly yeah mm-hmm. no I think I think you're right listening to it again I was I was confused as to why you rated it so high and then now that I'm listening through it I'm like wow. Yeah, it's strong. It's, yeah, mm-hmm. it is. This this made me think that they had written that uh, Jack and Diane or whatever it was. Yeah, it sounds kind of like it, but no. 
And I was like, ooh, another Dire Straits song that, like, is popular that I didn't know existed. Which I don't know why I keep saying another, because, like, both the only ones on here that I knew of, I knew were them. Mm-hmm. Just, I feel like they are one of those bands that secretly has some of those, kind of like Steve Miller. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why I have that feeling, but maybe as I go through their discography, I will. Yeah. I, I like how I'm already showing my hand for final <laughs> thoughts, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So this song is um, based off of a real breakup that he had. Oh. And the whole point of it is that um, he was with a, uh, he was with another musician. Yeah. But he ended up obviously becoming way more successful than her. But at the time, you know, his success still was not guaranteed. This was their third record after coming off of a disappointing second record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very much in love with her. And she pretty much, like, kind of very heartlessly cast him aside. And that's specifically that lyric of how can you look at me as if I was just another one of your deals. That actually comes from almost word for word from a uh, interview that she gave um, where she mentioned that Mark was just another one of her deals. Mm. That's where everyone kind of connected dots to say this is about her. Who was it? About that breakup. I can't remember her name. Um. It was Holly Vincent, lead singer of the short-lived band Holly and the Italians. And the Italians. Yeah, no one's ever heard of them. Oh, well, we have. have. We have. Yeah. What What happened was that I had a scene with Mark, and it got to the point where he couldn't handle it, and we split up. Like she's pretty much throwing him under the bus. Hmm. And kind of just like you know, not not saying very nice things about him and so pretty much this is this is his heartbreak um he's the whole uh the whole main lyric that ties everything together is uh that the timing was wrong yeah mm-hmm. i it's sad that the mm-hmm. it's so you 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 come at the you know it's the serenade he's trying to win her and then it's fiery in the beginning. Yeah. You know, Juliet, when we made love, you used to cry. You said, I love you like the stars above. I'll love you till I die. When you're going to realize it was just the time was wrong, Juliet. And I love, I love the third verse, how, how earnest it gets. I can't do the talk like they talk on the TV and I can't do a love song like the way it's meant to be. I can't do everything, but I do anything for you. I can't do anything except be in love with you. Mm. I mean, that's just, it's just, it's real. Yeah. Yeah. It's- and then, yeah, when you get to the outro, it's, it's, it's like he's, he's back where he started after the breakup, yes. but there's, there's a, there's an inherent sadness that is now in it, instead of yeah. a, instead of a, you know, an optimism to find love. 
either you can kind of interpret it two ways either he is trying to now find someone else quickly to cover up the pain or he's stuck in the past remembering what he once had Mm. he's maybe replaying it over in his mind or he's just you know he's pathetically now back out trying to find someone else Mm -hmm. you and me babe how about it Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sad either way. It probably means all of those things at the same time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of open ended, you know. It it really does mean all of them at the same time. When you don't specify, it kind of can can have its own meaning to the listener, which is rather obvious. But you know, it's good to be reminded of that all the time. That that songs sometimes mean more than their end up meaning more than their intention. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Man, the sounds in this song too are amazing. Yeah, yeah, the way the guitar is done is very, especially at the outro. Just the guitar, just kind of it's it's real dry, but it's yeah. just also just it's just good. So yeah, I I felt like putting this because I knew I needed to have this song in this, and I was I was really struggling on where to put it, and finally I kind of decided. You know what? This serves as a nice emotional, like, almost like a, like, this is, you know, we have the furious storm of emotions that in Telegraph Road, especially after that massive guitar uh, ending. I feel like kind of bringing it down to a very peaceful level, yet still having something that's so emotionally resonant, it felt like a right way to end the set. Mm-hmm. It definitely did did feel weird like ending with telegraph road and then going into another song mm-hmm. it's kind of like hmm but like if you're gonna do that romeo and juliet is the song to do it yeah mm-hmm. this is a great song. I, don't, I, I don't like to be completely predictable yeah. <laughs> sometimes, right, right, right. sometimes i gotta uh yeah, switch it up that. right i felt good at the end of romeo and juliet at the end of the set though yeah like oh, it, yeah. it was like a it was like one of those like I was happy and I was sad, but like it, as it was ending, I was just like, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was a weird, it was a different catharsis than normal. Yeah. And I was just like, you know what, you know, it is what it is, you know, <laughs> that's kind of how I ended it. <laughs> Life just be that way sometimes. Yeah. All right. Well, if you guys don't have anything else, we uh, can go ahead and make another break here. All right. All right. So when we come back, we are going to uh, give our final thoughts about Dire Straits and wrap things up. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Ethan. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got done listening to our songs for the week, which was Money for Nothing, Lady Rider, Sultans of Swing, Private Investigations, Telegraph Road, and Romeo and Juliet, all by, of course, Dire Straits. And now it's time for our final segment before our special after hours for all the patrons. Um, and it's called Final Thoughts. This is just where uh, after, you know, usually after talking about the songs, we have our, we have our first thoughts. And then we talk about the songs and we uh, kind of re-listen and relive the experience. And now we get to kind of say our final thoughts on Dire Straits and uh, how our opinions have changed from our first thoughts. So 
Grant, final thoughts go. Well, I knew that as soon as I heard Telegraph Road, it was going to be my favorite. <laughs> and I was right. So I'm just going to get that right off the bat. Yep. Telegraph Road, without a doubt, is my favorite song of the set. Um, just because it's like, I don't know, I didn't know the specifics of the story, like when I first heard it, but I could pick up on certain lines. And I love that about, um, you know, songs that it's like, you, you can't quite perfectly hear every line, but you, if you really pay attention, it's like, you can get a really good story out of it. And, and I think that the music backs up that story as well. It just, it was a, it was a full experience just all of it it mixed the wonderful guitar playing from the first it had the great lyrics from lyrical philosophy from romeo and juliet it's got the weird atmospheric moodiness of private investigations it's just i think telegraph road is one of those perfect songs that it's just it's just everything is just right um so that's why it's my favorite um and I did kind of like already show my hand on like my final thoughts and where I stand with Dire Straits now um, that, you know, I said, I wanted to listen through all of the albums Yeah, and I kind of do. <laughs> you have a very I, long listening list. I'm starting to think, yeah, I don't really have that too, too long of a listening list really, because I, I said that about Meshuga and I already listened to all their albums. What? I'm into their, I'm into their EPs now. No, I just, well, I had a really busy week, and so I just, you know, I could, I finished up, um, I finished up the Everywhere at the End of Time, which was, which was quite an experience, and I highly recommend. the The last five minutes makes the first six and a half hours worth it. I promise. Um, but um, and then, of course, after that, I went straight to Mashuga, and of course, I was listening to you know the the songs for this episode as well. But it's just I I was just going straight through it, and I think I have to say you know the the first part of Mashuga is is my favorite. I'm sorry, Lucas, I already told you. But and Ethan, you could have predicted that. But but anyway, that's just to follow up on our previous episode. Um, but no, I can foresee myself doing that with Dire Straits now, especially that Love Love Over Gold album, because both of those songs from that album that we had on this set were just so like extra tier of like. I feel that sometimes bands who write songs like Sultans of Swing and Money for Nothing almost get lucky. That's like, that may be wrong, but that's just my impression is that when you write a good pop song, you got lucky enough that you were able to come up with like a good catchy melody. And it happened to be just so that like millions of other people found it catchy as well. But when you write a song like private investigations or telegraph road that's able to give somebody like a mental picture of a storyline or of a, of a, a feeling that's very difficult. Like even if that, even if you can do that for one other person, like that's super difficult, but it, it shows that you're a good artist as well, that you didn't just like try to, crank out pop songs which like there's there's something to be said about that like if you can if you can write hit after hit that's great but there's a there's an extra level of craftsmanship to the stuff that i 
am hoping that I'm going to see on Lovo for gold. So I'm probably, I'm tempted to go in order, but I mean, if I'm honest with myself, I'm probably going to start with love over gold and just, you know, oversaturate my ears with that before moving on to the next. So you started yeah, as a three. You started as I started as a three because before this whole experience, this whole listening to everything, I didn't even know what to think. That's why I was a three. And now I'm not going to say that it's going to be to the level of Meshuggah. I don't want to say it's a four plus, but it's definitely a four. Definitely. I'm wanting to listen to more. If, if my experience with love over gold is as good or better than I'm anticipating, then they may earn a four plus spot, but I don't anticipate that. Um, but on the other hand, that, that, could be the case. They could change but you are the way that I them to them, them again. You're going to give them oh, a chance. For sure. Yeah, oh, so for you're sure. So you're a, you're, a, you're a four. I'm a four, for sure. I'm For sure I'm a four, but I don't think I'm a four plus. That's fair. I think at this point we should go with like a ten scale, since none of us are giving... Eight. All right. Points. Yeah. In, maybe in the, after, in the after hours we can we can debate on a, on a ten scale. Yeah. I'm just I'm just so <laughs> excited for what Dire Straits has to offer. All right, it's so weird, but okay. Anyway, I've taken enough to, uh, enough time, Ethan. I feel like I could have guessed. I, I I think that I can pretty much make side bets and make a lot of money that whatever the longest song is, that's going to be Grant's favorite song. Pretty much. <laughs> you'll be you'll be hard pressed to find an episode where the longest was not my favorite. <laughs> So I originally came in after listening to the set and I I was like Private Investigations is the best song. But it, mentally I was just like it's so cool, it's so atmospheric, the, the acoustic playing is on it, the pacing is really good. But then after we talked, it's it changed to Romeo and Juliet. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. And I think it was just cuz I Whenever I listened to Romeo and Juliet, even before, I was just like, whoa, this was originally a Dire Straits song and not a killer song. And then I kind of purposed in my heart, I was like, Romeo and Juliet's not going to be my favorite song because I'm not going to just, you know, be basic and pick the killer song that I already know, you know? Mm-hmm. But then once I, because I never really thought about the lyrics and I, also, I think that the Dire Straits version of Romeo and Juliet feels more pure mm-hmm. than the, not not that the Killers did a bad job. They did it in the in the Killers way, and it's good, you know. But with the way that the lyrics are, it, like this arrangement of it, just feels more true to the lyrics. And once we got there, and it's probably just the catharsis and all of our conversation, just leading up to it and hearing the backstory and just all the all the fluff that we always cover. That I always say the fluff doesn't matter, but it definitely does matter because it changed my mind. <laughs> and so, yeah, so Romeo and Juliet I think is 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 my favorite, and it's just so nice. It's just mixed so nice and it's so happy. Um, so I started at three point one. I would say I am almost a four. I am I am right even even now I'm debating. I'm like I really liked Romeo and Juliet and um 
I'm interested to know if there's more stuff like that from Dire Straits, you know? And then I would dig into that, probably. I don't think I'm as excited to jump in as... uh, I haven't found the Dire Straits album. The only thing that's keeping me from diving in is knowing... uh, I'll probably just go to the whatever album Romeo and Juliet is off of and just start there, I guess. But... So that's where I'm at. That uh, I think, and even more final thoughts, I'm glad that we did this episode on Dire Straits because kind of like what we talked about at the beginning, it's like everybody knows that they exist, but like they don't know anybody, any, they don't know Mark Knopfler. They don't know anything. You know, I think it's a cool story that he just was a, you know, just a guy, you know, <laughs> that was like, yeah, I'll try music let's take it seriously and then he just blew up I think that's a it's just a regular guy I kind of I like stuff about regular guys but anyways I'm glad we did the Dire Straits episode I thought the set was built really good um, yeah it's just a, just a good band that I'm glad that I have some more context for in the grand scheme of music alright well I'm glad that you guys uh, enjoyed <clears throat> I um I would have said that I would have been like a a week four just because I just know enough to be able to like go higher than that. I had loved everything that I had heard, but it was very, very limited. Like to when like when we when I started my research, usually on the bands that I'm more familiar with, I have a general idea of like what my set's gonna look like with Dire Straits, I was just like, I know I'm going to for sure have Money for Nothing and Souls of Swing, and I have no idea what else they even have. (laughs) And so I had to go through their entire discography before I could even put the set together. That's how green I was. Um, But I think that it also helped me to really know what songs to pick after going through everything. And um, I just, I loved listening to it. I loved going through this. It also really helped that they had pretty much barely any weak songs at all. And so it made the entire research process really fun because I didn't have those songs that I had to slog through or those albums that I had to slog through or time periods. It was just, it was all like very consistently good. And because of that, I would say that I'm a high four, or if we go through the, uh, the, the, the 10 scale ranking, I would put myself at an eight, maybe not quite. And like, once you get into nine, that's like, you know, you could be lobbying to be a potential pillar. Yeah. I wouldn't say I'm at that point, but absolutely. I'm way like, I would have put myself probably at a six before. And I'm at an eight, which is a pretty good, healthy mm-hmm. jump. Um, and then, yeah, specifically, Mark Knopfler has just very much impressed me. His his the well of songwriting genius that he had inside of him, uh, as well as also just really appreciating him as a guitar player. Um. I just, I'm really glad that we did this band. I'm really glad that it was suggested to us because, again, this is a band I probably would have kept forgetting to do one about. 
because I didn't I didn't really know that much about them. And so I didn't have this personal desire to go, oh, man, I really want to do an episode about this because I, lo- I, I want to talk about this fan. I love them so much. So thank you, um, Michael, for suggesting yeah. this to us. And uh, to everyone else that is listening, please send us your recommendations. Either uh, send us a message on social media or leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on and let us know in that uh, what artists you would like for us to cover in the future. Oh, I, I should probably uh, say what my favorite song is. Yep, before before you head out. <laughs> um, for me, I just I think it has to be Sultan of Swing. Ooh. It's just that's the one every time it comes on, like I have to stop what I'm doing and just air guitar my way through the whole song. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> it's just I I can't like I'll be at work, you know, at my computer working on accounting, and then because that's when I do a lot of my research is I just have my music on while I'm working, and that song comes on and I just have to like stop and just like you know rock out for about yeah, five. Minutes. It demands your full attention. Yes, it does, and I have to sing along with it too. That the, of the six songs, that's the one that like that gets the biggest reaction from me, and I think that that's why I have to pick it. And, yeah, and then we got to go with Harry's pick, which for those of you guys don't know, this is gonna besides our music history because I don't think I'll, I'll make my four year old son sit through uh, <laughs> Renaissance choral music in a different language. Um, but he usually uh, is in the research process with me because I drive him a lot of places and that's what we listen to in the car. I tell him, okay, for the next week, we're only listening to Dire Straits. And he became a big Dire Straits fan. (laughs) He's got an iPad with a Spotify playlist of his songs and he told me to add uh, uh, five of the six songs on the the only one he didn't is Romeo and Juliet, and that's mostly because the times that I'm listening to it with him, we usually don't get that far into the set. Ah. Mm. But he wanted me to add the first five in there. What's his pick? Uh, it's Sultan's for Swing. Sultan's for Swing. Because it says his name. Yep. Yeah, and he he can just about sing that whole song, and he did it for us one time, and we like were dying laughing (laughs) because he also like inflects his voice the way he does, and so just hearing a four year old going, "He's got a daytime job, he's doing all right," (laughs) it's so funny. (laughs) So. Uh, so yeah, there's our episode. Thank you guys so much for listening, for continuing to support us as uh, we continue to grow. Our episodes are getting bigger each week, and that's really exciting. Um, and we owe it all to you guys. Thank you for constantly tuning in. If you want to catch future episodes, make sure to hit the subscribe button. New episodes every week, uh, Monday, 9 a.m. Central. Next week, we are going to be uh, talking about one of the artists that is currently nominated for this year's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So make sure that you guys tune in next week to see who it is we're going to be talking about. 
and um, make sure to check out both the links in the description of the episode. One of them is going to take you to our Spotify playlist. Go listen to these songs. Um, even if you've heard them before, hearing them in the order that they're put in should uh, help you to see the songs in a new way. And then the other link will take you to our Patreon page where uh, you will get access to exclusive content, including the uh, the Bad Music Podcast, which is something we're going to be recording shortly. So um, if you want to be in on all that, as well as getting access to episodes early, then uh, go check that out. And that's it. I'm Lucas. I'm Greg. I'm Ethan. Keep on listening to good music. Music.